The baseball buffet has started. Step up to the plate and get in the buffet line. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and crackers, Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Call it one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. Welcome to Baseball Buffet, our monthly roundtable focusing on recent baseball events. We will work our conversation in and around our luncheon at the Zoom Cafe, our online meeting space where we shelter in place. Our buffet of baseball commentators include Andy Jeff Ione, award-winning photographer and former image master of the Chicago Cubs, Chuck Hildebrandt, award-winning baseball researcher and chair emeritus of Sabres Baseball and the Media Research Committee, Tom Henninger, editor at Baseball Digest and author of the just-published Pride of Minnesota, The Twins in the Turbulent 1960s. I'm your host, Jim Walker, author of Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio. Our good friend and baseball regular extraordinaire, Stuart Shea, will be back next month. Tom, congratulations on your new book. Can you give us a very quick tasting? Well, the book focuses on the twins and their four pennant races between 1965 and 1970, but also touches on the major events of the era, the British invasion, the civil rights movement, the space program, and the Vietnam War. It was a time of great change, which coincided with the collapse of the 16-year Yankees dynasty. The Yankees uh, had a string of 14 World Series in 16 seasons, come to an end in 1964, the year that the Beatles arrived on our shores, and the British invasion and a growing diversity in popular music were in full swing when the Twins won the AL pennant in 1965. It was an exciting six years for the Twins and for this teenager. Yeah, well, congratulations. <laughs> That's really exciting for you and best of luck with it. Thank you. All right, now on to our opening appetizer. Let's get everyone's take on MLB's latest experiment with Atlantic League, moving the pitching mound back a foot. 60 feet, 6 inches becomes 61 feet, 6 inches. Will the extra foot make any difference? And I'll just sort of throw this open to everyone. Chuck, Tom, Andy, what do you think? Well, the idea seems a little shocking at first, since it feels like 60 feet, 6 inches was handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai by God Almighty himself. But remember, too, that uh, pitchers are 4 inches taller on average now than they were in 1892. The last year, the 50-foot pitch distance was in effect. So bigger, taller pitchers are looming closer than ever because those pitchers are also stronger and, of course, throw faster. Uh, The reaction time that hitters have to respond to pitches is getting shorter basically every year. For sure. So in in light of that, moving the mound back a mere 12 inches doesn't seem as radical as it might on first blush. And the numbers I heard, uh, it would make a pitch going 93 miles an hour today seem more like 91, which doesn't sound like much difference, but it will add about 15 milliseconds to a batter's reaction time. And that will make a big difference. So it should give hitters substantively more time to react. Now velocity is just one part of the problem uh, leading to rampant swing and miss. The other is pitch movement, which is also greater than it's ever been. And so the question is, Mm -hmm. will any potential gain in contact rate by batters having more time to react be canceled out by the movement the pitch can take in that additional foot? Obviously, the spin rate issue has to be addressed as well. And baseball is making some moves in that direction by removing baseballs from games 
and studying them for additional and illegal sticky substances. And moving the mound won't address that. But as an experiment to gain some control over the mounting velocity problem, I think this has enough merit to give it a try. Okay. Andy, Tom? Yeah, I I agree. I mean, at, at first, hearing just hearing that as an experiment, the movement, it's like, this can't happen. But the more you read about it and the more you break it down like Chuck just did, it really does sound like it could make a difference and it visually won't change the game very much. The thing that is still kind of unanswered is what will it do for pitchers as far as um, their approach and their health? Will their health be affected at all? Will we have more walks? Will we have any kind of pitching detrimental effects? Those are kind of the unknowns. Well, Tom, you were there when they set it at 60 feet, six inches. Are you <laughs> upset that they're changing it? And, 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 and tell us in an old prospector voice. Right, right. <laughs> well, back fun. in my day. <laughs> God, sarn it. Run the mound back again. Yes. Well, I'm really curious to see if breaking balls become a more important weapon. Obviously, yeah. the batter may get an extra fraction of a second to determine what, what kind of action is on the ball. But it seems to me that extra movement on the ball and that extra foot might be more substantial than having that extra split second. So right. I'm really curious to see what this does to a pitcher's arsenal. Will he really be throwing more right. breaking balls? Now on to MLB taking the midnight train from Georgia. After the Republican governor and legislature passed new restrictive voting laws, many see as targeting African-Americans and other minorities, Major League Baseball moved the 2021 All-Star Game from Atlanta to Denver. This was a remarkable move for a traditionally very timid professional sport. Andy, why did Major League Baseball do it? Does it really signal some actual change? Well, to send a message to legislators who passed the bill, essentially, is why this was done. And in Mm -hmm. a statement from good old Kamish, he says, Major League Baseball fundamentally supports voting rights for all Americans and opposes restrictions to the ballot box. As far as signaling a change in MLB, hmm, perhaps. I'm suspect of the intentions of giant corporations in general. So using the words socially conscious to describe MLB is kind of a hard sell for me. (laughs) Moving the all-star game out of Atlanta sends the right message for sure. But was it motivated by the league's sense of benevolence? I don't know. Seems to me that few, if any, major corporations in America, even indirectly, want to be associated with the discredited narratives of the 2020 election. MLB probably realized Georgia is a political nightmare and one that it just doesn't need. Not to mention, there was a great possibility that players would boycott the game, another thing they don't need. Yeah, this opens the door. I think the all-star move has put pressure on organizations to pull their businesses out of Georgia to send a message. That being said, I can't help but feel cynical about MLB's intentions. Young people are more politically and socially conscious than ever before. And MLB desperately wants to court that demographic, especially after the 2020 season in which they brought in a little over $3 billion in revenue, a paltry sum compared to the 10 plus billion the year before. Yeah. And and to your point to being a political nightmare, I mean, baseball was sort of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because not moving it would have been just as big, just as strong a political statement 
as moving it, but they would have raised pushback from the Players Players Association. Association. And not not only the Players Association, but individual players may be threatening to boycott the game. If you right. look at it from that standpoint, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer to move it out of there. But really, there, there was no real clean uh, decision they could make here that would have relieved them of responsibility for blowback. Well, interesting what you said, Andy, about the younger crowd, which baseball might be appealing to. Uh, a few days ago, Forbes ran a piece after interviewing people at the Battery, that entertainment area around Atlanta Stadium. Mm -hmm. And it was a mix of people coming out of the park, apparently, and also people just using the area. The people just there for entertainment were a younger crowd, a more diverse crowd. And in polling people about this poll from Atlanta, they found that the young people were overwhelmingly approving of it. Apparently in their very small sample, it was kind of eight out of 10, nine out of 10 were approving of what baseball did you know now I don't know if that was MLB's motive in any sense of the word but um, it does seem like a a small little positive about it Mm -hmm. what about the older folks though that are a traditionally more conservative uh, group and certainly a more white group do you think that they're going to alienate those fans and do they care well, I'm not sure it does matter. Uh, I do wonder if the demographics of the typical fan who's going to swear off MLB over this decision would be more rural or small town America, really. Yeah. Fans who, you know, may be less likely to live near a big league park and have, you know, maybe a lot less money to attend the games. And, and then those people as well, their access to the home team on TV is probably packaged with dozens of other stations. So most won't be canceling anything in that regard. Yeah. And I presume MLB has done some research before making this decision to leave Atlanta. They sure. probably determined it wouldn't hurt their bottom line in a significant way. Right. Obviously, owners right now are talking about lost revenue without fans in the stands. But let's face it, the TV money is really what makes things go. And I suspect mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. aren't going to impact that at all. Right. Hardly at all. right. Chuck, do you see any benefits to, to Major League Baseball being perceived as a more socially responsible corporation based on a decision like this and pop perhaps some other decisions in the future? Well, baseball is interesting as a business, although if you believe the 1922 version of the Supreme Court, it's not a business, it's a lark. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, baseball has long marketed itself as having a deep, rich history stretching back well over a century. And that's the kind of marketing that has tended to attract uh, the type of fan who responds strongly to nostalgia. They tend to be older. They tend to be male. As you mentioned, they tend to be white. And as such, a good many of them identify as conservatives who, and this is built right into the label, tend to be resistant to change on and off the field. That said, baseball has also been lusting after a younger, hipper, more multicultural audience because let's face it, such people have more time left on this earth to be (laughs) baseball fans. Yes. Yeah, so baseball doesn't want to miss the opportunity to capture that fan base or, as as MLB might say, tap into that market uh, to ensure their long-term survival. Tap, by the way, means something very different to the people they're targeting. <laughs> but anyhow, that will probably... Those young re- listeners out there. <laughs> feel like getting tapped. Uh, that will probably require a, a well-rounded marketing campaign uh, that both emphasizes the up-and-coming rising stars in the field today which we've seen in baseball's kind of spotty uh, execution of the Let the Kids Play campaign. But part of the overall uh, campaign will include some focus on their target market's generalized desire for social justice, part of which is ensuring the right of registered voters to exercise their franchise freely and without undue hindrance. 
So to the degree that baseball can merchandise their success in this area, um, they may, they may start to see some benefits, although I do think it'll be some years before they can tie any real tangible results to that. Well, we'll take a break. When we return, we'll offer some surefire predictions for the new season. Back in a burp. back. Just a quick reminder that Baseball Buffet is available on most top podcast providers, including Apple iTunes, Google Play, and many more. Amazon Echo users can access our podcast Lickety Split. Just say, Alexa, play Baseball Buffet on iTunes. Well, we're a few weeks into the season, just enough time to fool us into thinking we know what's going to happen. So let's be the fools that rush in with some predictions. Andy, who will be the surprise team this year, the one no one saw winning anything in 2021? Well, I am going to be an enormous fool and say, (laughs) I know it's early, but the Reds have had an impressive start with 91 runs, 135 hits Mm -hmm. in their first 15 games. Mm -hmm. And of those hits, 67 that were scored at home in seven games is a new National League central record. Wow. What's different, though, about this season is this potentially sustainable offense, beginning with Tyler Naquin, a spring training invitee who signed a minor league deal in the offseason, who's also in first place uh, with 18 RBI right now. There's been a lot of hot and cold moments, though. Eugenio Suarez is still having hiccups at the transition to shortstop. And there's injuries, Moustakis, Lorenzen, Aquino, and it's early. But watching this club, this season, for some reason, feels different. Like there's this tangible competition between the players. Rookie Jonathan India has 11 RBI. Veteran Tucker Barnhart leads the team with a 389 batting average. And even Joey Votto has changed his approach at the Mm -hmm. plate and is hitting the ball harder than he has in years. Plus, as a bonus, the late season schedule could really favor the Reds with nine games against the Pirates. So even if they're puttering late season, a couple divisional wins could change their fate. Now there's an addendum to this. This was all written before their three straight losses and they're <laughs> losing right now. But I, 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 you know, I'm a Reds fan and I've watched them over the years, but there's just something different. And I'm hoping that that different can really push them into uh, kind of sneaking by and maybe taking that division. Okay, Chuck, who's taking the unscheduled train to Nowheresville this season? (laughs) Uh, Well, well, that's an interesting way for you to put the question, because, you know, with several teams engaging in behavior guaranteed to lead to many losses and last place finishes in their quest to save money and get high draft picks, also known Mm. as tanking, too many teams appear to be taking scheduled trains to Nowheresville. <laughs> so these teams include many of the usual suspects, the Tigers, the Rangers, the Pirates, the Rockies, perhaps uh-huh. still include the Orioles in that, maybe even the Cubs in that group. 
But most of these franchises have been engaging in that behavior for too many years. Yeah. However, to your question, some teams are trying to put a winner on the field and despite their best efforts, and I'll give them the benefit of the doubt in what constitutes best. Some of those teams may fall well short of their expectations, not the least of which are the Yankees, who yeah, continue to fight yeah. injury, right? Luke Voigt, mm-hmm. he's currently out mm-hmm. at meniscus surgery. Miguel Andujar is, has carpal tunnel. While guys like John Carlos Stanton and Aaron Judge always seem one awkward swing away from landing on the IL themselves. <laughs> you know, their closer, Zach yeah. Britton, is also out after elbow surgery. But even healthy, they have their holes. I mean, particularly in their starting rotation, which yeah. these days is basically Garrett Cole and pray for rain the next four days. Um, <laughs> their relief core is very good, probably the best in baseball, but banking on a full year of good health from any bullpen might be an exercise in just counting chickens. Yeah. Uh, and their hitting is among the worst in baseball at this moment, including the aforementioned Stanton and Judge, and of course, Glaber Torres. Yeah. All of them are f- firmly ensconced on the interstate batting one something. So the Yankees were basically the consensus team in the game, according to preseason prognosticators. So anything short of that, not to mention missing the playoffs entirely, which is still technically possible, that trip would definitely be unscheduled. Interesting. So. Yeah, and both what uh, Talion and uh, uh, Kluber, uh, the two sure. uh, mm. pitchers they got who they were uh, really hoping for bounce back candidates, so far, not great. Right, exactly. They're part of yeah. the pray for rain contingent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't right. even rhyme with spawn insane. Just pray for rain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tom, let's look at the players for a moment. Who's the player that's going to win a major award that no one is expecting them to? And, and why do you think that? Well, he might not be quite the surprise at this point, but the player who does stand out to me immediately is Milwaukee right-hander uh, Corbin Burns. Who's fan guys have not issued a single walk in his first four starts. He's allowed mm-hmm. a single run and has a 0.37 ERA. He's been a highly regarded prospect, but his career really did make an upturn last year when he abandoned a windup and started pitching from the stretch on every pitch. And he's just been a Cy Young candidate in midseason form ever since. It's hard to see him keep that pace, but I think we'll still be talking about Corbin Burns at the end of the year. I got a couple other guys that I sort of look at in the same vein. Yeah. I, I kind of expected Arizona right-hander Zach Galen to kind of be mm. a guy who might emerge this year. He's been terrific for two seasons, but both of them are only partial seasons. And another one who sort of stands out to me, we've been waiting for a big emergence and it might be happening is uh, Dodgers lefty uh, Julio Urias. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you, you see know. some young pitchers uh, breaking yeah. through. Yeah, I tend to look for those guys this time of year. Obviously, we'll, we will see all kinds of hitters as well. But uh, those are the three guys I've been sort of watching this spring. Okay. Chuck, Andy, any any surprises you're seeing? Well, you know, okay, so there is a guy named Akio Badu for the Tigers who uh, got off to this amazing start, hit a home run on the very first pitch he saw in the majors, also hit a grand slam, uh, hit run scoring doubles and triples all over the place. And then pitchers started finding the holes in his batting stance. And he struck out something like seven straight times. Uh, You know, there's a reason that the guy was made available on the rule five draft after having played no higher than, you know, high A ball. He's kind of sketchy as a base runner. He's not a good defender. He has an arm like a noodle. He's going to strike out a lot, but once he gets the ball, he can take you out. So if pitchers make enough mistakes in the zone to him, he could have a, one of the better rule five years in history. It was just a pretty low bar because it's yeah. not 
There has not been that many good five, rule five years. Andy? Tyler Glass now has been sort of on my radar a little bit too. He's also having a really great start. And, uh, you know, having a an ERA under one is incredibly impressive and tied third with 36 strikeouts. So if he can stay on pace, that Tampa team continues to be a interesting a run producing team. Yeah, if you take a look at the top hitters in the major leagues based on uh, fan graphs, you see the top five are Ronald Acuna Jr., Mike Trout, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., J.D. Martinez, and Justin Turner. Those are five of the guys that you would expect to right. see at the very top. And right, it's just exactly. kind of, it's almost yeah. amazing to see the top five populated with established stars. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is not established, but everybody assumes that he's going to be become an established star before long. Right. The number six guy is Jazz Chisholm right. in, in Miami. Right. Who's, he's been really, really fun to watch. Great on the field. Just a lot of exuberance. He is definitely a poster child for let the kids play. Right. You know, you mentioned Vlad, Vlad Jr., Chuck, and uh, mm-hmm. there's a guy who, you know, yes, we've, we've known of him. Uh, but, you know, you wonder, could he end up being a guy that emerges as an MVP candidate? He lost a bunch of weight. He came into camp in great right. shape. I just wonder if this could be his year. This could be his breakout season. So, Well, baseball can be kind of unpredictable uh, and surprising. Um, if you're going to offer what you might think is going to see a surprise, we'll see in the 2021 season, what might that be? What's something that might happen this year that no one's expecting to happen? I think we're going to see a perfect game. We've already seen two no-hitters and both strangely ended by hit-by-pitch like five days right. apart from each other. Mm-hmm. And another big surprise for me personally this season is seeing the pitching going deep. I really didn't think after a shortened season we were going to see guys pitching deep. And we've seen a lot of it, and we've seen some really good performances. And I think we we could see a perfect game this year. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably not going to be as surprising as you might see in other years since – Right now, baseball is on track for having the lowest batting average uh, mm. across baseball mm-hmm. in history, wow. lower even than 1968, which was a year oh, where the batting average was so low, they changed the Just rules the, of the game to address yes. it. You're the pitcher. <laughs> yep. Well, I have something that I think we might see that has literally never happened before, and that would be consecutive immaculate innings. And, of course, an immaculate mm. inning is three strikeouts in an inning on nine pitches by a pitcher. And mm. uh, they've become more common in recent years. There were four of them in 2019, two by Chris Sale that year, and only one last year by Zach Plesak. But, you know, the way the strikeouts are going, I wouldn't be shocked if, uh, you know, we see a guy record six strikeouts on 18 pitches at some point wow. this season. So. Well, my thing is that despite that MLB is trying to do everything they can to wrap up any given day's events and send everyone home as soon as possible with things like, seven inning games for double headers and starting to run around second base for all extra innings, all of them designed to shorten the time of games so they can send their employees home happy. I think we will still see at least six 14th inning stretches. Really? I think we will. Yeah. So last year we had, uh, I think we had three games that went 13 innings in a six, in a 60 game season. Mm -hmm. And we've had one game already go at least one game already go 13 innings this year. Wow. So I think, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's possible that at least six games go at least 14 innings. Finally, we offer our last bites. Each of our baseball buffs will offer one last delicious morsel. Tom, what's your last bite? 
Well, I've got to give another shout out to my favorite major league player, uh, the Twins five foot nine, 225 pound utility stud, Williams <laughs> Estudillo. He's played every position but shortstop in our career, spanning 107 games. And on last Friday, he took them on for the second time in his career during a 10 to three blowout loss to the Angels. And he worked a one, two, three, eighth inning, throwing pitches ranging from 46 to 72 miles per hour. <laughs> just amazing. And then to top it all off in my mind, his, his pitching exploits were overshadowed by his latest contribution to his own viral video library a few days earlier when he slid into first base feet first, <laughs> successfully avoided a tag by shifting his body inside the foul line as he slid. Now, this little nifty slide feet first into first base can be seen on YouTube without the opening advertising, and you will find there's a lot of finesse in that turtle-like body. <laughs> wow. Wow. Excellent. That's amazing. <clears throat> okay, Chuck, your last bite. We almost had the thrill of a rare perfect game last week when Carlos Rodon got 25 batters into it before costing himself the rare honor by plunking a batter. For their part, the Indians did everything they could to give Rodon a perfect game, taking strike calls in the zone and swinging at pitches a foot outside it. But they also tried helping Rodon achieve perfection by executing what looked like the single dumbest slide in the first base I have ever seen. <laughs> Top of the ninth inning, Josh Naylor led off with a slow roller to Jose Abreu at first. It looked like Naylor was going to beat it out for a hit. Abreu fielded the ball, ran over, and tagged first. Naylor got to the bag first but he was still out. How? Well, while sliding headfirst, he extended his right arm past the base without touching it and instead <laughs> touched the base with his tucked in left arm, a long enough delay to allow Abreu's foot to beat Naylor's trailing hand to the bag. Had Naylor merely grazed the base with his extended right hand, he would have been safe. This is not the only terrible sliding decision we see. Here's one we see a lot. Runner slides into a base with his lead leg hovering in the air and over the base and not actually touching the base until the tucked in back leg he's sliding on makes contact with the bag. Nick Castellanos did this on opening day 2018, and it cost his Tigers an extra inning win against the Pirates. He was initially ruled safe, but the call was overturned on challenge because replay showed his lead leg hovering over the plate while he was tagged out. It seemed like the dumbest base running decision a player in his position could make but we see this a lot. On the one hand, you would think this flaw would be coached out of players and they would be trained to always make contact with the lead limb. On the other hand, this is prevalent enough to make me wonder whether something else is going on here. It can't just be mass player idiocy, can it? Is it a safety issue? Is it actually dangerous to a runner to stretch out and touch the base with his lead limb? And by doing so, is he exposing himself to a likely injury? It seems like there must be some rational logic behind sliding into the bag with your tucked in trailing limb and not your lead limb. Whatever the case may be, I can tell you that it's aesthetically displeasing to watch and actively enraging to see a player on your favorite team when he beats the ball to the bag by a lot, but he's still tagged out simply because he slid over or around the base. It's maddening. And I sure <laughs> would like to know why players slide like this in the first place. So, Andy, finish us off here with your last bite. All right. He was hitting 118 with one homer and three RBI in 39 plate appearances this season with the Yankees when Jay Bruce had seen enough, citing his consistent underperformance as the signal that it was time to hang up the cleats. 
After 14 incredible seasons, I've decided to make the very difficult decision to retire from baseball. All I ever wanted to be when I grew up was a baseball player. And to say that I got to live out my dream would be an understatement of a lifetime. The sport gave me more than I ever could have asked for. A first round pick of the Reds in 2005, he was a top 100 prospect in each of his first three years in pro ball, eventually becoming Baseball America's number one farmhand entering the 2008 season. Bruce made his major league debut in May of that year and hit a decent 254, 314, 453, earning a fifth place finish in National League Rookie of the Year voting. Bruce ends a 14-year career with a 244 average, 319 home runs, and 951 RBI, playing the bulk of his career in Cincinnati. Few years with the Mets and shorter stints with Cleveland, Seattle, Philadelphia, and finishing with the Yankees just a few days ago. Lamenting on his career, he says, I saw Ken Griffey Jr.'s 600th home run, been a part of multiple no-hitters, and big games like hitting a game-winning homer to clinch Cincinnati's first division title since 1995. I didn't reach the top of the hill. I didn't win that World Series, but that's okay. And another retirement footnote, longtime second baseman and Pittsburgh native Neil Walker also retires at the age of 35. He was a first-round pick for his hometown Pirates in 2004, And during a five-year run between 2010 and 15, the switch-hitting Walker batted 273, 338, 443 with 93 home runs and a Silver Slugger Award in 2014. But the big question is, is he related to our own Jim Walker? No, (laughs) because he has some athletic ability, so he couldn't possibly in any way be biologically connected to me. (laughs) Yeah, right. Switch, not hinder, in my case. (laughs) Hey, maybe he's a mailman's kid. Who knows? Yeah, right. All these last bites were so yummy for the tummy. However, for now, baseball buffet must close down. We will visit it next month when we grab a fresh plate. By then, we'll probably already need to revise our predictions for the 2021 season because... Despite all of the analytics, baseball is still a wonderfully unpredictable game.